So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, and this is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's help to understand his word. Father, we thank you so much that this too is your word. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, take your word and speak it into our hearts today. Father, we pray for those who are far from you, that through your word, they would draw near today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're starting a series on the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is probably one of the best-known books in the entire Bible. So even if you're not a Christian, you would probably have some inkling of the book of Jonah. It's about a prophet who defies God, gets on a boat, gets thrown overboard, and gets swallowed up by a fish. I remember a colleague of mine saying that in his army unit, Uh, His officer will tell the men, hey, don't be a Jonah. And by that, he means don't be someone that people want to throw overboard. Now, I checked with some of the NS men in uh, our CG, and I think it was probably before their time because they had never heard that. Uh, But yeah, so even in the army, they tell you don't be a Jonah in some units. Uh, One of, uh, I think it's Jovin who told me the guy must be a diver. Anyway, the message of Jonah seems to be something that we're familiar with. Now, that is good and that is bad. 
it's good because I don't need to retell the story to you. You have some of the idea of what the story is. But what's bad is, we tend to assume that we already know what the message of Jonah is. You see, throughout the history of biblical interpretation, there have been different ideas about what Jonah is really about. Some think that Jonah is about discipline. A prophet runs from God and God disciplines him. Well, we do see that in Jonah chapter 1. But it's not all about discipline, is it? Some think that Jonah is about prayer and repentance. And we see that heartfelt Jonah, a prayer of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. It's there, but that's not all that Jonah is about. Some think that Jonah is about mission, taking the word of God, the message of God, and bringing it to the nations of the world. And that's what we see in Jonah chapter 3. Yes, it is, but that's not what Jonah is all about either. Finally, some people think that Jonah is about race relations in Jonah chapter 4. You see, the original people who heard Jonah would have been Jews. And perhaps this was a writing that was encouraging them to deal with people who were non-Jews in a way that was honorable. In a sense, this was a correction to the way that they had seen themselves being an exclusive race. Might be there, but that's not the entire book of Jonah either. I want to submit to you, friends, that there is an underlying message that draws together all of these messages and infuses into these messages a certain power to do those things. Why, friends? Because this central message of the book of Jonah brings us into the very heart of God and infuses us with His love. Now, what's that message? Look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah, as he's in the belly of the fish, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, cries out at the end of Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who saves, and God is the one who saves the undeserving. In other words, the message underlying all the different messages is the message of grace. More specifically, it's the message that God saves sinners by grace. We cannot save ourselves. He must save us, and we respond in faith. And friends, when that gets hooked into our hearts, pushed into our hearts, it gives us the power for race relations. It gives us the power for mission. It gives us the power to repent willingly. It even gives us the power to be disciplined and to be corrected. Why? Because as we look into the heart of God, we see a heart, who, we see a heart of love who draws people to himself to love them and to care for them. But friends, before we can understand that message, we need to understand how we get that message wrong, how we don't always embrace grace in the way that it should be embraced. So in Jonah chapter 1, three quick points. A reluctant prophet, a pursuing God, and a gracious substitute. Reluctant prophet, pursuing God, and gracious substitute. I'm going to give a bit of time for the kids to copy these things down. They have a worksheet that they're working through in the sermon. So the first word is reluctant prophet. The second word is pursuing God. And the third word is gracious substitute. Big words. Let me explain them. The book begins, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Come with me to verse 1. It says here, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Do you notice 
that there is not much information that's given about Jonah. It just says he's the son of Amittai and he received the word of the Lord. Do you know why? This was probably because Jonah was very well known. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it tells us that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II in 8th century BC. Jonah, the prophet, had supported the king in restoring the borders of Israel. He brought the word of the Lord, the message of God, to the king. The king then did what God called him to do and restored and expanded the borders of Israel. At this point in history, Israel was prosperous, Israel was peaceful, and Jonah had a key role to play in Israel's history and life. He was a well-respected figure in Israel. He had all the right religious and cultural pedigree. And notice it says here that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. You see, friends, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all Christians. In the Old Testament, it was not like that at all. There were an exclusive bunch of people called the prophets that the Holy Spirit was upon. They would hear revelation from God, and they would bring that word and bring it to God's people. And Jonah was one of the elite prophets of Israel. In other words, friends, this man needed no introduction. He was famous. He was someone who was respected. He was seen as religious. He was seen as patriotic. He was seen as a nationalist. He had all the right religious and cultural pedigree. He was the creme de la creme of the 8th century BC Israelite society. This is the man, Jonah, well respected for his religiosity. Now, as a typical prophet, he receives an instruction from God. Look at verse 2. God says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Receive this word, Jonah, and do as I tell you. Go to Nineveh and proclaim my judgment over Nineveh. This was typical of the prophets of the Old Testament. God would speak to them and give them a task to do. Now, friends, what was not so typical is Jonah's response. Look at verse 3. It says... Jonah rose to flee. Jonah rose to flee. He went in the opposite direction. He refused to obey God. Friends, this is a religious man. The creme de la creme of religious society of 8th century BC Israel. And he refuses to obey God. Why? Well, friends, for us to understand that, we need to understand two things. We need to know something about Nineveh. And we need to know something about God. Something about Nineveh and something about God. Friends, you see, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Now, the Assyrians were one of the most violent empires. They were known to glory in mocking, torturing, and killing their enemies in the most horrific way. Now, friends, I'm not very squeamish. But as I was doing some background research into the Assyrians, it made me sick to the stomach. I won't repeat it in the pulpit, but they were known to glory in mocking, torturing, and killing their enemies in the most horrific ways. One commentator says you would probably call them a terrorist state in today's time and place. So perhaps Jonah was afraid. 
You're sending me into a terrorist state to proclaim judgment over them? Are you serious, God? Do you know what they do to their enemies? So perhaps Jonah was afraid. But friends, there's more to the story. You need to know something about God to know why Jonah is reluctant. Look at verse 2. What is the message that Jonah was supposed to bring to Nineveh? God says, call out against it for their evil has come before me. It's a message of judgment. It's a message saying that God has seen you, God has known you, and you are sinful, and he will judge. Now, if you think about it, isn't this the appropriate message? Wouldn't a prophet of Israel want to bring that kind of a message to an evil empire, to an evil people? But you see, friends, Jonah was a well-trained theologian. He knew his theology proper. He knew his doctrine of God. And he knows the character of God. So although God does not explicitly say it, Jonah, being a well-trained theologian, knows it. And what does he know? He knows, friends, that when God threatens judgment, he's also offering mercy. When God threatens judgment, he's also offering a way out. And some of you here are non-Christians, you're investigating the Christian faith, and you find portions of scripture where God talks about judgment quite offensive. Can I say to you, friends, if you were Jonah, you would understand that whenever God threatens judgment, he's also offering mercy. And Jonah, being the well-trained theologian that he was, knew exactly what God was saying. Go and proclaim judgment to Nineveh, but I will offer mercy if they repent and turn back to me. And that's what Jonah says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. At the end of the book of Jonah, as he's having a chat with God, a discussion with God, he says this to God in anger. I knew... I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Friends, do you see what's happening here? Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh, not just because he was afraid, but because he did not want the Assyrians to receive the grace and the mercy of God in forgiving them and in taking them in. He knew that God is gracious. He knew that God was merciful. That was his problem. He did not want the Assyrians to receive the same grace that he had received. Now, friends, this is ironic on many levels and very telling. So many things we can learn. Firstly, we need to realize that the Israelites themselves were recipients of God's undeserved mercy. This was something they knew. In their law, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to 8, God says to them, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God had said to Israel, You are mine, not because you're great, not because you've done all these wonderful things. In fact, you are the least of all the peoples. You are mine, and I love you, and I've chosen you because I love you and because I made an oath to your fathers. Jonah knew this. They were recipients of grace. But friends, now the God of Israel is saying, I want to take that same grace that I've shown to Israel, And I want to give it to another nation, a nation that is more wicked than Israel, 
And this is where Jonah had a problem. He could not stomach it. He could not stomach the fact that God wanted to show grace to an evil people. And so he fled. He went to Joppa. He got onto a boat headed for Tarshish. Verse 3 tells us, away from the presence of the Lord. You see, friends, Jonah did not think that the Assyrians deserved the grace of God. And that's an irony at another level because the very nature of grace is that it is totally undeserved. So although Jonah was well-trained in theology, he understood theology proper, he even understood the grace of God, he didn't really get grace in his heart. He still felt there was something superior in him and his culture that deserved God's grace more than the Assyrians. Friends, we proclaim in this church that we believe in the gospel of grace. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But friends, if we can look at another person or another group of people and somehow think they shouldn't get God's mercy, they shouldn't get God's grace, it's a sign, friends, that we haven't truly grasped the gospel of grace. We can understand it in our minds, but we haven't grasped it in our hearts. We may say we do, but our bigotry and our lack of desire in bringing this gospel to a people different from us betrays that we don't really get grace. Friends, think along with me for a moment. Think about someone that has hurt you deeply in your life. Think about that person. What would if I were to tell you that the same grace that God gives to you, God wants to give to that person. What would you say? What would you say? Your response to that question, friends, will reveal whether or not you truly grasp the grace of God. Because if you say no, then you're saying that, yes, you know, I'm undeserving of grace, and that person is undeserving, but that person's undeservingness is more undeserving than my undeservingness. I'm undeserving, but I'm more deserving in my undeservingness than he is in his undeservingness. And at the end of the day, we don't grasp the nature of grace. We're still saying, I'm still better than this person. Something in my background commends me to God. Yes, I believe in the gospel. But, 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 there's something in me that still commends me more than the other person. And that is the dynamic, friends, that is working here in Jonah's life. He flees from God, ironically, because he doesn't really get grace. He runs away from God because even though he thinks he understands grace theologically, he doesn't grasp it in his heart. And friends, that can be true of each and every one of us here because we are all Jonah's in one way or another. If we ever look at another group of people or another person and we say they are other, they cannot get in, they have to do a bunch of things, if we have these boundary markers and those boundary markers are not the gospel of grace, if there's anything other than the gospel of grace that is a boundary marker for people to get into your inner circle, friends, we have not grasped grace. Now some of you have come from other churches 
you've watched some YouTube, you've discovered Reformed theology, you're really hot now, you read the Bible, you read Calvin's Institutes, you wear a t-shirt that says Sola Deo Gloria, and you think, man, this is what's going to get me into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I am an ordained Presbyterian minister. I've taken vows to uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith. But can I tell you, that t-shirt, that kind of attitude, that's not what's getting you into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what's getting you right with God. You can have all the right theology, like Jonah, but still not get grace. Because you look at other people who may not be as well-read as you, who maybe don't have the money to buy Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics, and you say, those people are outside. Well, friends, if that is your attitude, if that is my attitude, if there are certain speakers or certain teachers in your life that you hold in such high esteem that anyone that opposes them or is different from them is somehow outside, you haven't got grace. You haven't understood it. You may know it in your mind, but it's not burning alive in your heart. And you are fleeing from God, friends. I am fleeing from God. And the reason we flee from God, friends, the reason underneath the reason is because we don't really grasp grace, the undeserved nature of what it means to be a child of God. God is more gracious than to leave us there. Because although many of us are reluctant prophets like Jonah, God is the same pursuing God that comes after us. Jonah was on his ship sailing to Tarshish. But verse 4 says, The Lord God hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God sent a ferocious storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. And it says in verse 5, the mariners, the sailors, they were afraid and each cried out to his God. These were pagan sailors who knew the seas well. They were seasoned sailors. Rough seas did not make them afraid. So if they were afraid, you better believe that this was a very serious storm. It's a storm that was strong enough to sink the ship and kill all of them, all because of Jonah. And so they had every reason to fear. God sent a storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. Now, one commentator reminds us that in the Old Testament, when he talks about a physical storm, it often expresses an inner reality. So there's a physical storm that is coming after Jonah, but there is a storm in Jonah's heart. There is an inner turmoil. There is a struggle. There is God knocking on his heart, urging him to come back. And friends, in God's mercy, he sends storms into our lives to awaken us, to see how far we are from him. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. And sometimes God will send storms into our lives to awaken us, to show us how far we are from Him because we don't even realize it. We think we're doing fine. But when He does so, He's awakening us to how far we are from Him. 
is also awakening us to his grace, his mercy, and his love. And my friends, sadly, like Jonah, we can often ignore the storms that God sends. Look at verse 5. The sailors were frantically trying to save the ship. Jonah, however, instead of trying to save them, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The original word used there for his sleeping implies that he was in a deep sleep. What did Jonah do? He went to sleep. Now you must be thinking, how in the world can Jonah sleep in the middle of this storm that is going to kill all of them? There was a 19th century Scottish minister by the name of Hugh Martin. And as he was preaching this passage, he says here that Jonah is sleeping the sleep of sorrow. Jonah here is sleeping the sleep of sorrow. Now, what is the sleep of sorrow? You've experienced it. I've experienced it. We've all experienced it. The sleep of sorrow is when you want to stay under the covers to try and escape the sorrows and the storms of your life. It's when you want to sleep just a little bit longer so that you don't need to face the problems and difficulties in your life. It may not be physical sleep. It's anything, friends, that distracts you from facing the harsh realities of the life that you live, the storms and the sorrows of life. It could be work. You fling yourself into work to distract you from where your heart is. You fling yourself into entertainment. You watch all the Netflix you can. You watch all the YouTube videos you can to try and distract you from the pain that is really here. This, friends, is what Jonah is doing. He's sleeping the sleep of sorrow. He's seeing the storm come, but he won't face the storm. He tries to escape the storm, and the best way he knows is to go to sleep. But friends, the problem is, you can't really escape the storm by sleeping the sleep of sorrow. You can't really escape your problems by trying to distract yourself with work or entertainment. The problem is still there. The storm is still there. The sorrow is real. And the good news is, you don't have to. You don't have to sleep the sleep of sorrow. You don't have to distract yourself. There is a way out of the storm. Well, God rouses Jonah from the sleep of sorrow. And he's here to rouse you too. And how does he do it? He sends another pursuer. Not the storm, but the sailors. Look at verse 6. The captain of the sailors asked Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. In the original, he's literally saying, How can you sleep? Do something. Jonah remained silent. And in verse 7, the sailors cast lots to figure out what the cause of the calamity is. God directs the lot to fall on Jonah. And so all of them on the ship now know that the storm is caused because of this Jonah. They're going to get killed because of this prophet's disobedience. 
And so they plead with him in verse 10. What is this you have done? And he tells them, I'm fleeing from the presence of Yahweh. I'm fleeing from the presence of God. God sends the pagan sailors to awaken Jonah from his sleep of sorrow. And there are great ironies here too, friends. You see, friends, although Jonah says in verse 9 that he is a Hebrew and he fears the Lord, it's the sailors, it's the worshippers of other gods who are showing any true fear of God. They're the ones trying to save them all, including Jonah. They're the ones trying to figure out what has happened. Jonah, on the other hand, is sleeping. He's completely passive. It's these pagan sailors who worship other gods that are showing more fear for the true and living God than the prophet of God. What's going on here? Well, again, Hugh Martin, as he was preaching through this passage, he titled his sermon, The World Rebuking the Church. The World Rebuking the Church. You see, friends, verse 9, The Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land, he has no qualms in using an unbelieving world to rebuke his believing people. He sends a storm, and he sends the sailors, the pagan sailors, who for all intents and purposes at this point in time do not worship him and do not believe in him. This is the world, friends, rebuking the church. And that too, friends, is grace. That too, friends, is grace. Have you noticed, friends, that sometimes the world can have higher standards and purer motives than those of us in the church. This is what theologians call common grace. You see, there is an aspect of God's grace that he gives not just to believers, but to the entire world. The entire world is not saved, but they do experience some aspects of the grace and favor of God. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus says God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. So as you look at the world, you will find people in the world who are non-believers, who have higher standards than you, who have purer motives than you, who live better lives than you. And God sometimes uses these people to call out his own people to awaken them from the sleep of sorrow. You know, very recently, a very famous Christian apologist was exposed for living a duplicitous and abusive life. Do you know who exposed him? It wasn't Christians. It wasn't Christian organizations because they revered him too much. It was an agnostic lawyer and self-styled journalist that did his investigation and exposed this apologist. And what should we do, friends, as Christians? We should humbly receive that rebuke. Because even that, friends, is God in his mercy rebuking us and revealing to us where we fall short. God has no qualms in using unbelievers to show us where we fall short. Have you noticed, friends, Sometimes, how your non-Christian friends are often kinder, gentler, warmer, 
more hospitable, and even more accepting of your faults than your Christian friends. A few months ago, I had came out from a particularly difficult conversation with a fellow brother in Christ. I was feeling rather misunderstood, accused, and beaten up. Some of you know I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. There's a bunch of eight guys that uh, I wrestle with almost every morning. And I was beaten up inside. The next morning, I went to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, and it's interesting that I get more kindness from people who are trying to kill me <laughs> than from the church. And for the first time ever, I commented to someone, man, sometimes the people out there in the world have more kindness the people in the church. Man, I don't feel as judged by them as the people in the church. And friends, what do we do when we face situations like this? Do we turn away from the gospel? We can't because Jesus rose from the dead. It's true. What we must do, friends, is receive that rebuke. See where we've fallen short. Come back to God in humble repentance, cry out to Him to change us, to make us the kind of people that He wants us to be. And that too, friends, is the grace and the mercy of God. And that, friends, is the only way we can truly change. And friends, that is the grace that Jonah encountered. He changed Only slightly, we're going to continue the story later, but you need to look very carefully at how he changed. The last point, the gracious substitute. Look at verse 11. The sailors recognized Jonah as a true prophet, and they asked him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? What shall we do to be saved? They recognized Jonah as a true prophet, and they were turning to him in his disobedience and asking him, What must we do to be saved? And Jonah says in verse 12, what I think is the most important verse in the entire book of Jonah, he says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Friends, do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening here? Jonah had sinned and he was fleeing God. He was going to die. And as he was going to die, he was going to take all these sailors with him to his death. He was facing a certain death because of his disobedience to God. And here were the sailors desperate to be saved. Now Jonah could have continued sleeping in the sleep of sorrow and say, I don't care. I die, you all also die. But what does he do? He does probably one of the most noble things anyone could do, he says, throw me overboard, let me die for my sins, and you can be saved. Do you see what's happening here, friends? The storm has come after Jonah, the sailors have come after Jonah, and something clicks in him. I can still do something that a prophet is meant to do. I can still do something good. He knew the storm was his fault. He knew that God was coming after him, If he stayed in the boat, they would all die. But if they threw him overboard, he would die. But they would live. He does the noble thing. He offers himself as a willing sacrifice, as a gracious substitute for them. 
Throw me into the sea, Jonah says. I die, you live. And remember, friends, at this point, the sailors didn't know about the fish. And Jonah didn't know about the fish. So for all intents and purposes, if he gets thrown into the sea, he dies. The sailors, verse 13, still very noble. Nonetheless, they try to row back to land. Say, no, we we can't kill this guy. Let's try our best to head back to land. They try very hard. But as hard as they try, they cannot save themselves through their own human efforts. And so when they come to the end of themselves in verse 14, they call out to the Lord. And this is an amazing shift here because the word the Lord there is the word Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God. They weren't just calling out to a generic deity. They were calling out to Yahweh. They were calling out to Jonah's God. They were calling out to Israel's God. And they were saying to this God, verse 15, don't count, verse 14, don't count our sins against us as we do this. We have no choice. We're desperate. And in verse 15, they pick him up and they throw him into the sea. And what is the result? Two things. The sea ceased from its raging. They're saved. And these pagan sailors are converted to the true and living God. It says here that they feared the Lord, verse 16, exceedingly. The word the Lord there is the word Yahweh. They feared Yahweh. They offered a sacrifice. They worshipped Him. And they made vows. Friends, what are these vows? They're like our membership vows, friends. It's a vow which is a public expression of their intent to continue faithfully worshipping Yahweh. They were converted to faith in the true and living God. And friends, the irony of it all is that it happened in spite of Jonah's disobedience. He was a disobedient prophet. He was fleeing. But God in His grace still used Jonah to do that one noble thing to sacrifice himself on their behalf and they are converted to him and they are saved. And friends, that is the grace of God. And there's more grace because the sailors think that Jonah is dead. And as he's sinking into the ocean, Jonah probably thinks he's dead too. And yet verse 17 says, miraculously, God sends a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It's a miracle. And three days and three nights later, Jonah is vomited out on dry land. Alive. Jonah deserves to die for his sins. But God in his mercy preserves his life miraculously by sending the great fish. And that too, friends, is the grace of God. But friends, as you're reading this, you may wonder to yourself, Jonah has sinned against God and deserves to die. God has saved him from death. So who dies for Jonah's sins? He's supposed to die, rightly so. He doesn't. So who dies for Jonah's sins? Well, friends, many centuries later, there was another boat that faced a great storm. You can read about it in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. 
Jesus was there with his disciples. The ship faced a great storm. And like Jonah, Jesus went to sleep. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 40, when the Pharisees were asking Jesus for a sign that he was the Messiah, he says to them, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The son of man, referring to himself, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you see what Jesus is doing, friends? Jesus is telling us that he is the true, better, and upright Jonah. Where Jonah succeeded, Jesus succeeded too. But where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeded in his place. Jonah was fleeing God. Jesus was fulfilling God's plan. Jonah slept because he was a coward. Jesus slept because he was in full control. Jonah was flung into the sea of God's judgment for his sins. Jesus was flung into the sea of God's judgment for all our sins, including Jonah's sin. And that is how Jonah can be saved from death. And that is how you and I can be saved from death as well, friends. Because we have a true and better Jonah who was flung into the sea of God's judgment for our sins, not his own. And do you see, friends, this is how God pursues those who are fleeing from him. He sends storms into your life. And sometimes he uses the world to rebuke you. But at the end of it, all of that drives you to the feet of Jesus, the true and better Jonah who gave himself for you so that as you look at him and all that he has done for you, you no longer have a reason to flee. You no longer have a reason to be afraid. You no longer have a reason to feel that you need to be more deserving than the other person because he looks on you with grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we start in this series on the book of Jonah, that you would bring about a grace revolution in our lives and in our hearts. Help us once again, Father, to encounter the God of grace and the God of mercy who does not count our sins against us, but lays it upon Jesus Christ. And as we encounter that grace, Father, may we truly come back to you. May we stop fleeing, but start following. May our prayer lives and our repentance be reinvigorated with power. May our desire to bring the gospel to the nations come from the very depths of our hearts. And may we treat people who are different from us in a way that is worthy of your name. We pray for the church in Singapore, beyond just us, that we too, all of us together, would be ambassadors and faithful witnesses to the gospel of grace. We pray specifically right now for Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church, our brothers and sisters who worship you. We pray that you be with them. 
We pray for Grace Baptist Church today as well. Strengthen them and help them, Father, in the next phase of their development. We pray for Agape Baptist Church as they reorganize and as they head towards the future together. And we pray for Redemption Hill Church as well, that your blessing be upon them, that your wisdom be with them. Father, we pray for our nation. As we've heard this week, there is a hiccup in the transition of leadership. Father, we come before you as your people, commanded by you in Scripture, to lift up our leaders and our nation to you as fellow citizens here in this nation. And we thank you, Father, for the service of Minister Heng Sui Kit. We thank you especially for the five budgets that he had put together and the way that it has helped us, even in the church, even as Christians. We pray for his health. We pray for his well-being. We pray for his continued contribution to the cabinet, that it would be fruitful and it would be useful, that you continue to give him the wisdom and the, the ability to lead in that role. We pray for Prime Minister Li Shenlong. We pray, Father, that you sustain him and his health, give him vigor, give him foresight, give him insight as he continues to lead. We pray for wisdom for the 4G leaders. We pray that they would quickly be able to come to a consensus on who the next leader is. And whoever that might be, friends, that might be, Lord, we pray that he would be someone that creates a conducive environment for us to worship you and for the gospel to go out. We continue to pray for the COVID situation that we are facing as well as the rest of the world. We thank you, God, that you have been so gracious and merciful to us to enable us today to gather for worship and to sing. We pray, Father, that we would always be grateful for your grace, grateful for the ability to gather and to sing with brothers and sisters in Christ, that this episode would show us just how precious it is to be with your people, to hear your word, to sing your praises, to be in your presence. At the same time, Father, we are so conscious that, the, that COVID-19 is raging across the world. We think especially of the nation of Brazil right now, how they are facing not only their second wave, but their third wave, and it's one that is so lethal, affecting young people. We pray for your mercy upon that nation. We pray that your people would rise up in that nation to be salt and light. We pray for the doctors. We pray for the politicians. We pray for the supply chains. We pray for everything that needs to come together for vaccination to take place, for the virus to be controlled in the nation of Brazil. More than anything, Father, we set our eyes upon you again today, the true and living God who is author of life and death, who is the master of the universe, and yet who draws near to us when we call out to you in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.